Listeners, we're back. John, how long has it been? It's been three, four weeks at least. I know. And I think with three or four weeks of absence, we owe the viewers or the listeners. <laughs> we have listeners, not viewers. Wait, this this is being video recorded, John. These are uploaded to YouTube. Did you not know that? <laughs> they are. <laughs> I should probably put some pants on. <laughs> right, exactly. Only from the waist up. Um, ladies and gentlemen, we have an exciting episode for you. I'd like to introduce our guest. But we actually don't have a guest. The guest is just John and I today. John, why are we doing this? Uh, It's our gift to all of our listeners who held out for three or four weeks. But also, I think a lot of people know who we are, but we want to give the chance to interview ourselves, maybe change up the format a bit, um, and you'll be hearing about that shortly. Um, But honestly, you hear us every week. And so we want to give you the opportunity. We're the to, men behind the masks. Yeah, so the men speak. behind the masks. So we didn't run out of friends. That was my concern, John. Did we run out of friends? Oh, <laughs> we were very close to. I actually found. We've expended our art. I made a couple of friends tonight, but they weren't available for the podcast. Really? Yeah. Okay, uh, next time. We'll add them to the queue. I was also thinking that we're missing a mic. Does this mean we need to change two, our. Two mics in the mixer. Wow. It just doesn't have the same name. ring. I know. So. Rather than just listening to John and I, uh, there's a word for what we're doing. I think drivel is the is the right word, but um, we do have a program lined up for you today, ladies and gentlemen. We have written down collectively five or six questions for the other person that they do not know. I've it's written complete down secret. Yeah, some serious zingers that John is going to have to answer on the fly and provide an adequate answer to. I don't. I don't think you'll be able to do it, John. I. Is this a challenge? <laughs> I was more prepared for some light, lighthearted like an- questions and answers. Oh no, mine, mine are all What's your heavily color? Okay, this first one. Um, you fold up your paper a lot better than I did. Um, what makes a good friend? Do you think certain demographics of people are generally better friends than others? Interesting. And can I ask for a quick clarification? What do you mean by demographics? Yeah, are, are millennials worse friends than baby boomers or interesting yeah or people who live in rural communities i mean you you come from a, a rural community rural John. upland are, Indiana. yeah are they more steadfast or less steadfast than people from the city and and of course i wrote this question so you could just talk about me the whole time right oh uh, alex you're the best friend there is <laughs> um so what makes good friend you know you only need to look into the mirror alex and you yeah can see, there we go that's uh, what i was looking go. for there, there's a uh, vision for compliments there but I think there are a couple of aspects that immediately jump to mind um, and I, I want to I, I'm honestly more interested in the second part but I'll, I'll quickly answer your first part um, first thing that comes to mind is loyalty the second is just willingness to spend time and develop trust uh, and the third would be um, see I, I've, I've I've talked myself into a corner I don't have a third third topic loyalty and I, I trust that's all it takes loyalty trust and like i think shared shared passions would be the other one yeah without this podcast we wouldn't be friends Alex. that's right no i i really like the first piece about loyalty because so many people in college or even beyond college you think are friends but it's because you share a lot of circumstances you share a lot of classes your roommates and then once you move away from that person everyone can relate to this you just drift away Right. I think a good indication of friendship is once those shared spaces have dissipated, how well do you keep in touch? Right. Yeah. And and I think that kind of leads into the second question about demographics. When you think about developing a friendship a hundred years ago, you know, I'm speaking from personal experience, of course, um, <laughs> you had to set up your friend date days in advance, schedule at the time. There's no phone to text even not even like a phone to call with and to set that up. Uh, and so as a result, I think there was a little bit less of this idea of like hyper development and also the lack of that. So like the idea of you make friendships really quickly, but you also lose them really quickly nowadays. Mm. But back then it, since it took so much time and effort to even develop that friendship in the first place, you, you stuck around longer um, to keep them. And, you know, and and our parents oftentimes lament flakiness among millennials, whether it be flakiness of texting, calling, showing up to things late. Do you think that's a result of the technological age? Yeah, and I think that's that's a separate conversation we can dive into. But I think there's a lot of aspects. I think you have that flakiness. I think you also have the flakiness of comparison. Like, I'm only going to commit to something. There's the risk that a millennial will say, I'm only going to commit to something 
until there's something better that comes along. Yeah. Whether that's a friendship, um, a relationship, it's scary. It's not good either. Like I think there's there's value in that commitment, which is why I think marriage is such a valuable institution hmm. um, and is still relevant today. I think it provides stability and commitment where there needs to be. Right. So you're saying if I lived in 1800s Missouri, there's way fewer options of things going on. And so I'm not having to choose between 10 different plans on a Friday night. The optionality of the digital digital age, there's all sorts of yeah. wild, um, you know, you just think about the Facebook files that have come out recently. I think, you know, body image, like just comparison, run amok. And the same thing goes for friendships. And I think that that ultimately weakens those ties because um, you see, you know, friends that are cooler or more interesting and then you gravitate towards them over social media instead of really going to people who are most um loyal now absolutely good answer john yeah all right moving along all right question for me how do you trust god in saving for retirement yeah and i want to provide some like additional background here alex you and i have talked about the idea of you know managing our money uh, in a in a wise and godly way, and I, so I think one of the biggest questions is how do you um, balance kind of this idea of trusting God versus really be, doing wise and 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 planning your retirement and saving for your future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a parallel question is how do you trust God that your kids will get better? Right. And where I'm going with this is, do you just not take them to the hospital because you know that God is sovereign and he can heal heal your children? Like, no, God gave us brains and the ability to be rational beings for a reason. And I think the wise thing to do is to save for retirement. Now, that's obviously within a limit. You and I have talked about how, you know, we should be tithing and how there should be caps on how much we save for certain things so that we're not trusting in ourselves too much. Um, but I think it, there, there's no harm in deciding to save for retirement because um, even though God is sovereign, he is, he's given us wisdom for a reason. Now, I'm going to put my devil's advocate hat on. Yep, uh, yep. I, I agree with you in most of those aspects, but like God commands us to store up treasures in heaven, not on earth. That's okay. That's fair. But you could store up a lot of treasures in heaven by being financially secure so that you can host people, right? You can be hospitable. Um, in retirement, you can choose to dole out any excess money like yeah. freely. I think if you just decide to, to be a hermit and wear a sackcloth, that actually limits your ability to store up treasures in heaven in certain ways because you have fewer resources to uh, dis- disperse to people as needed. Right. I think a, a maybe a different question that is is more about how you can trust God is how do you trust God just with your career and with your life? Because that's where the money for retirement comes from. So I don't think about, oh man, I need to trust God when saving for retirement. I think I need to trust God in my career and, and the, the plans that he has for me with my job. And that of course then translates to retirement. Got it. I like that answer. Yeah. Good one. Thanks. All right. Me. Um, so this next one, all right. The crinkling of the paper is going to be really good podcast. You know, you're supposed to crinkle them up in, in those ways so they don't get stuck together. Oh, yeah. If you're ever, if you're ever tip to the the people at home, if you're ever like entering a lottery or something with paper, um, you want to crinkle it up as much as possible. It'll increase the likelihood that it gets picked. So there you go. That's, that's just a free, <laughs> pro, free, device pro tip. Yeah, that's, yeah, free of charge. Um, so this next one, what is the right way for Christians to engage politically and what gives them the right to force their morality on others? It's a really good question. Um, so I think to start off with, I think, just clear the air. Christians should engage politically in some aspect or another. God created governments and democracies, right, to um, kind of provide. That's that's an an aspect of His grace, right? Is the ability that we can have to participate in our political government. Um, and I think the other one you want to think about is what when you think about. And I think this is where the question is coming from. People are like, "Oh, this that." So Christians, that's what you believe. What about X, Y, and Z, right? Um, and here's where I, I, I personally some go back and forth on this all the time. I think so. You'll you'll hear some of my probably con- internal conflict in my answer here. But ultimately, I think Christians believe that God's commands and that by therefore like morality from those commands 
are right and true and that any other path is destructive, right? God didn't make these commands arbitrarily. Um, and because of that, I think there's there's some wisdom in at least having that morality guide your actions um, in, in terms of the political space. And, and whenever somebody brings that topic up to me, oh, you're a Christian, leave your morals at home, my response is everybody lives through a moral framework, whether you're Muslim or atheist or you know Mormon, everyone has a certain set of morals that they think are right and wrong. And so everyone, when they go to the, the voting booth, is going to be wanting to impose their morals as they see right and wrong by voting in a certain direction. So yeah, Christians, great... in, in the democracy that we live in, Christians should have the right to do that just like any other group does, right? Yeah, and, and I think the, the question is, and I'll, maybe I'll pass this back over to you, is there ever a line that you draw, which is something that you can, um, you can say, hey, I have this view is technically what the Bible doesn't say, but I'm going to still engage politically maybe against that. Yeah. I, I think when that comes into play is for religious decisions that are um, personal to that religion, but that don't impact anybody else. So I think of like Muslims not eating pork, for example, and I'm sure there's some for Christianity, right? There's no, there's no reason for them to lobby for other people not to eat pork because that's something that they do simply to honor God and to like remain faithful and be reminded about him. They, they don't necessarily okay. need others to not eat pork, right? But I think when it's an issue of objective morality, right? If, if I'm a Christian and the Bible says, do not murder, I think, well, that's true for everyone, not just for me, right? So right. I'm going to try and avoid murder at the polls. <laughs> right. And, and, I, and I like that. And there's all sorts of other discussions I would love to get in here around, like, how do you vote when there's not a really a party that aligns those right. moral principles, totally. right? And um, I think there's a lot more, but I'll I'll end the question there. Yeah, yeah, good answer, John. All right, we're zipping through these questions. All right, describe the concept of love to an alien. John, this is so funny because I give you a very similar one. <laughs> oh, okay. this is great. This love, is great. All right, let's um, let's just both go back and forth on this then. Um, love is partially a feeling, right? But it's not completely a feeling. And I think our society today uh, indicates through songs and through movies that love is about your feeling. But I think a huge part of love is commitment, right? When you are dating somebody and you say that you love them, right? That implies that you will... You're going to marry them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As, okay. This gets to a debate John and I were having about... Uh, is marriage required to be in love? Something, something to that effect. And and you might be right, John, because again, like what what defines love? It's not just how do I feel about you at a certain time, but it's um, how how long am I going to stick around for you? I can say very clearly that I love my family, even though sometimes I don't like them. Right? If I'm getting in a fight with my brother, I love him because I'm going to be there for him and try and reconcile things until the day I die, even if we're in a disagreement. Uh, so that's my take how I would describe it to an alien. That's way beyond my pay grade. I was about to say, um, there, there's some like foundational principles. What is a feeling? Uh, what's a family? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so maybe yeah. the question was uh, not enough, not quite enough for a bit on a, a 45 minute podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, let me, let me spin that back to you, John, because I know that you have not told your long, long time girlfriend that you love her and you don't plan to for the foreseeable future. Tell that, me about that's that. correct. So, and I and I alluded to it in my comment earlier um, that, um, you know, love being a commitment. First of all, this is my personal decision. So, no, no judgment if people do it separately. But, um, you know, I believe that love is that idea of commitment. Not only do you have feelings for someone, but you are willing to um, put your time, commitment, your money where your mouth is, and commit to them in some aspect. So. What that means, um, like I think engagement and that the idea of a ring on a finger is the best example of showing that commitment um, like as you're approaching marriage. And I'm sure some would take the argument, that same argument and say, don't say, don't tell your partner that you love them until marriage. And that would be also be like completely understand where they're coming from as well. But the idea of that it's not just this lovey-dovey feeling, but it is a commitment and it's you taking action to make that commitment a reality. Yeah. And 
this conversation is not just an arbitrary philosophical discussion. I think it's something that every person should wrestle through because oftentimes society will make decisions about sexual relations with a partner based on whether or not they love them, right? They'll say, oh, if I love somebody, then of course we're gonna, we're gonna sleep together, we're gonna move in together, right? Um, but if you define love as affection plus commitment with the emphasis on commitment, then the love does the the proof of that love is the ring. It's that you say, I'm going to stick with you for the rest of my life. Um, at which point then in, within the Christian framework, you know, sex becomes consummated or whatever. <laughs> that, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but, um, but you see what I mean? Like, like people will um, correlate love with, um, with physicality. But if love requires the commitment of marriage, then thus marriage would be required for sexuality as well. And and you think about it as well, um, the idea of like volunteering or you know loving someone in a Christian standpoint, you're not doing that loving action because of a feeling, um, or it may you know not entirely because of a feeling, right? It's also just self discipline and will, you know, God given will to go forward and like love your neighbor or love your enemy in that way, which is I think also something to point to. It's like, hey, love is used in contexts all throughout the Bible in places that are not talking about marriage. Mm. Enemies, um, you know, friends, um, you know, your neighbors that are hurting or, you know, those who need um, help. And so I think that also provides some helpful context when you think about marriage in a in a love sense or a love sense when it comes to you in the more romantic sense of the word as well. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the the misdefinition of love is leading to a lot of problems in society around around marriage. Like fewer people are getting married and a lot more families are ending up broken because two parents decide that they don't love each other anymore. Well, I think that obviously there are there are valid reasons to end a marriage, but um, when you see it primarily as a vehicle through which you can support someone rather than be supported and, uh, and support children as well, then that completely flips the script for why you would marry somebody and why you would stick with them. Yeah. Sounds good. Good All one. Right. All right. Back to you. Ready John. for the next question? Yeah, we're ready. Oh, interesting. Um, what is the typical evolution of a yuppie? Um, so Alex, can you tell our listeners, um, what's a yuppie? Yuppie is an acronym. Do I know the acronym? No. Some young I, upper, young upper professional. Yeah. Some, something to that effect. But the definition of yuppie is uh, a young urbanite who has a good paying job, graduated college and, uh, is, is generally somewhat hipster perhaps. Yeah, is hipster a part culturally of that definition? Just aware. Yeah, culturally savvy, uh, perhaps a little too aware of that, and and does a lot of navel gazing. Creates uh, charcuterie boards for yeah. all occasions. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. I I ask you this, John, because some would define us as yuppies, and we are certainly surrounded by yuppies in our daily lives in Chicago. Um, what is that evolution from the time you graduate college to where we are now and five, 10 years from now? And is that evolution a good one? Do yuppies become the, the best of society? Hmm. Yuppies are typically when they move to Chicago, I think about like the first phase is tourist phase. You are mm -hmm. doing the classical things that um, any tourist would do um, that you experience a city, all the classical parts of a city. Ultimately, though, I think everyone eventually realizes that that's kind of um, empty and hollow. There's all these experiences without like the roots of like a true community. And so I think that's where like the second phase is more community building, where you are searching for other community. Now, granted, that community is other yuppies. So I think one of the one of the downfalls of, I think, yuppie culture is the tendency of it's very monocultural, um, very homogenous. What do you think the yuppie relationship is with material items? And that can include food and drink. How, and how does yeah, that change over time? Yeah. So I would say that, I don't know if it does change over time. Like it would almost like snowball. Like 
you know a couple of wines, then you know more, and then you have a specific, not only do you know which wine de- uh, is like designated under which category, like you, you know like the difference between like a Cab and a Pinot, Pinot Noir, but now you know like specific brands of like those wines and you go forward mm. and, and then you can comment on a wine that a friend brings to a dinner party and say, oh, that one's, that one's a great wine choice, like great job. I think that's a, maybe a microcosm of what that would look like. And I think when you look at material possessions, it's the idea that everything that you're doing is not like flashy materialistic, but it is serving some sort of social gain, mm. whether it being able to like flaunt your culturalism and the conversations you have or being able to talk well or have a nicely decorated apartment. I don't know. I, I think about my, our own kind of experience, Alex, like I got a lot of pride when we our apartment turned from being a um, an empty <laughs> wasteland to being- to, to a somewhat less empty wasteland. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not talking about our apartment here, but we, we have at least two, pictures hanging on the wall. Yeah, we do, is, and, and at least two pieces of furniture. Yes, That's right. Uh, which is an improvement. Um, and then ultimately, I think, you know, ideally, I think there's the giving back aspect, which is maybe more of just a person living in a community. Once you've become rooted and established, um, you're not really developing new relationships, but you're, you know, you're paving the path you're leading. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, this is all in the context of a very like materialistic homogenous, um, I think, framework and i'd love to hear alex if you have any thoughts on um maybe how to change that or how how maybe that's destructive well i i think the materialism um is developed far beyond far before college graduation right i think it's rooted in people when they get into high school perhaps or college perhaps and their entire four or eight year experience is revolves around personal success and the people cheering them on are are willing to bend over backwards for them to succeed like i know my mom like did way more than she should have to make sure that i could go to musicals and do well in school like i did not in high school oftentimes do the chores that i should have been doing or participate in the family activities that i should have been so i think that self selfishness um, that is oftentimes seen in yuppies is developed at a, a far younger age because they get to where they are post-college because of life revolving around them for so long. Do you consider yourself a yuppie? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I try I try and avoid the negative stereotypes, but by all like definitions of the word, we are yuppies. Yeah, that's fair. Um, a couple other like miscellaneous thoughts on yuppies here. One thing that surprised me about coming to coming to Chicago post college is that people go through this phase of acting like they're still in college. Do you remember when we would go to all these parties for work events and things like that? I mean, like alcohol does not just like disappear post college. Like it is still very much present, especially in the year or two after college, as like all the like kids from consulting firms are getting together and like that's what they know and so that's what they do. I'm, I'm, I, I do welcome the change from like college party to dinner party, though. I, I much prefer. A nice but that's what I'm saying over. is that the dinner party didn't start until uh, like a while into our time. We we've gotten good at hosting dinner parties, but the first couple like parties we went to and like exchanges we had with young professionals, it was like pretty much like a college party. Yeah, that's that's completely fair, and I, I even think about that in the context of substance and kind of how I think as you spend longer in an area, things just become more substantive relationships, Mm -hmm. the parties you have. Yeah. And, and the evolution of, of the substantiveness, if that's a word of our relationships, I think particularly in our heavily Christian community is that we've gone from very large circles and, and kind of getting together all the time. We had Chris Betty all here like every night for like six months to, uh, less frequent, but more substantial time together, especially as you find your core people and oftentimes those core people being significant others, right? That I, I have personally seen in the last six, nine months, this transition where people who would previously be, be getting together like three times a week, this group of people, now they're getting together less frequently because the season of life is changing. Things are going more towards engagements, marriage, volunteering, leadership, and community. So it's less 
quantity of time together now and more quality. And, and I would hope that any community reflects that kind of evolution over time. Uh, and that's one of the risks that you, you get when thinking about a city and the, the transience of a city. And maybe that's an aspect of being an, a yuppie is that after four years, whatever place that you've become cultured in, you then leave and then you go to the next like transient place. Maybe that's an aspect of it as well. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I mean, we're always searching for the next adventure, perhaps as yuppies. And after two years of the bachelor life, I think, I mean, a year ago, my, my group of guy friends, nine or 10 of them in Chicago, uh, we're all single and now just about everyone is either in a serious relationship married or engaged um, and so I, I guess my point is we very quickly are excited about the next phases of life and um, that's just kind of a cool thing to see that life has a couple more phases to throw at us there you go Alex want to hit us with the next question yes sir yes sir I do all right how would you change or improve Christian dating culture? Wow. wow. We, uh, this is a nice coincidence. <laughs> we were just talking about all your friends. Um, yeah, all my, all my friends getting, getting engaged and getting married. Um, okay, wow. This is an interesting one. I don't know if I'm the best like person to answer this because I'm not in a relationship right now, right? I'm not on the path to engagement or marriage, but maybe that's not a bad thing. I was about to right? say, you're on the outside looking in. Yeah, I, I'm on the outside. Okay, so you're wanting me to judge you right now, John, and all, <laughs> all of my friends. Let's I, see. I never thought you'd ask. You know, there's a I, before I get into any judgments, I think there's a lot of really good things. I think the um, Christian dating culture is a lot less consumeristic than secular dating culture, right? As somebody who's, who's gone on the dating apps, for example, like that's very consumeristic, right? You're swiping on people and making decisions very quickly. And I think oftentimes in culture, you're looking for the best person you can get. I want the very best. And uh, that's a hard thing to avoid. And Christians do a really good job of, um, I think oftentimes like just fostering a connection with someone and recognizing that no one's perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We don't deserve perfect people, but we're going to love each other anyway. Um, and so just to confirm here, your working definition of a Christian dating culture would be like asking someone out from your church, not going on like the Christian yeah, the, version of Hinge. Well, I mean, you can, you can go on dating apps, but I think in general, Christians that I know have done a pretty good job of not expecting perfection. Um, and, and that is probably partially due to not being on dating apps as much. Um, things that I don't like about Christian dating culture. I have gotten into a number of tiffs with some of my guy friends about timelines. I'm a, I'm a long timeline kind of guy. Like I want to be dating for two, two years before getting engaged to somebody. This is on the record, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Are you going to Manchester that? Um, <laughs> yeah. This is on the record. A lot of my guy friends are one year or less. And I would just like to clarify that I say all of this with much love to all of you. And I wish the best for all of your, your marriages and relationships. Um, I just think that it takes a long time to get to know somebody and we go through different phases of life. Sometimes we're in a really happy season. Sometimes we're in a really sad season. And my thinking is that you can't fake who you are for two years. I mean, maybe you can. But as, like after a while, the luster of a new relationship fades. The honeymoon phase has long since died. And you know whether or not you can just do life with that person. Um, so that's, that's why I have that two-year mark, is that I think Christians think, oh, marriage is the next step. Therefore, I'm just going to like quickly date and get married so I can get it over with. Not get it over with, but... It, they, they just see it as the thing to do as a Christian. And maybe that leads to my second critique, which is it's not bad Wait, to be I, single. I, I, I actually have a follow-up question there. Oh, yeah. Go now, you've, you've established that because of your experience in college. Now, could there be a possibility that the timelines are accelerated after college just because we're more adults? Yeah. We are more comfortable with who we are when you're talking about waiting for the real person. Um, we're all self-aware enough that we're not going to be faking it for someone um, for an entire year type type deal. That's true. I mean, once you're once you're post college, you do know yourself better, 
And granted, a good deal of my relationships in college were long distance, right? Two year long, long distance relationship is very different than the two year long in-person relationship. Um, that being said, regardless of your age, I think um, you go through seasons of life and sometimes you're in a, a good season or bad season. And um, if you're in a really good season at the time of starting to date somebody, and you are feeling like you're the top of the world, that may change very quickly and they may change quickly. So So my second point of uh my second point here would be that no one is really attractive in a bad season. No and everyone goes through bad seasons. That's true, but you over a two year span you have more data points, I guess is all I'm saying. A six month relationship before getting engaged, you have a quarter of the data points on the person than you do at two years, right? You'll have way more family visits to see how they treat their family. You'll be able to understand their friendships with their friends a lot better. How stressed do they get about work? Like so many more things uh, you'll be able to figure out. Got That's it. all I'm saying. Okay. And then I guess the second piece that I'll touch on quickly. What was my second piece? Oh, I, I interrupted you before you got it out. So I, <laughs> I, I think it was something to the effect of like marriage isn't the be all end all. Singleness is uh, is good. Maybe this is just me trying to pat myself on the back here. But uh, I think like Paul in Romans, is it Romans? Paul at some point in the Bible says that it's it's better to be married and if you or it's better to be single and if you have to get married, go for it. Um, but Christians, I think, oftentimes see marriage as the only ultimate good, and that's not the case. Now, my second ask, my second, I agree with that. Yep. Um, but I think about the other aspect, which is there's not really a dating status in the Bible, right? Where biblically, you're either single or you were married. Our yeah. modern culture has created this weird substatus of dating. Um, and even like, I guess engagement was maybe more of a thing in the biblical times, yeah. but yeah. And this I, whole idea of dating is a new concept. I, I agree. You should not date in perpetuity. You should either be dating to figure out who you're going to marry, or if you think you're going to be single, then don't date period. Be, be celibate, right? Um, there, there should be no in between dating. You're correct. is a progression towards marriage. Okay. Okay. So All right. Ahead Sounds good. This one, uh, this one was uh, ended with a winky face. So, oh, no. um, what is it like being so indecisive? Winky face. <laughs> um, that's a I, that's actually a great question because I think about this a lot. Yeah, um, and, and you can't come to a decision on it. <laughs> I know. I, what do I think about it? Is it good or bad? No, I. So a couple of like quick data points here. I don't like the fact that I'm indecisive. The second part is, I think indecisiveness is. I would almost consider it a part of like a necessary part of making decisions for me where like, I don't feel comfortable going into the decision unless I know I've thought it through. So the, with those being said, what's it like being decisive? It's not great. Well, I think the best picture that I have for decisiveness is a picture of a committee, right? Where in my mind, I can be fully convinced of two completely opposite things and not know which of them to take. Wow. Yes. So for example, at work, it could be like, we could choose this design or this design. And I'm like, both of these have great pros. Both of these have pretty big cons. The, the small differences are such that it's, it's hard to make that decision. I wonder if there's a correlation between being more indecisive and not being a judgmental person, because when you're judging other people, you are making a decision on them. Right. I find that I'm I'm a very decisive person at work. It's very easy for me to, to decide that something's better. And I also know that one of my my negative tendencies is it's very also easy for me to judge people. Do do you find that you don't judge people and do you think there is a correlation there? Interesting. And I think that's where I think there's probably a positive correlation between people pleasing and indecision. Um, ultimately there are things that people will say that you can kind of see their perspective and like you can see how they can be fully convinced. I would say even like politically, that's why I'm kind of a moderate is I can be fully convinced of two different things or can be, I can totally see where the other side's coming from. Um, and so I think the other one is compassion, like you mentioned, just being able to 
have that perspective. I think perspective shifting is maybe a, a side effect of being indecisive that then helps you be more compassionate. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I'm curious if indecision is like a diagnosable trait. A I, lot of I wish. I, I mean, maybe maybe it is. Um, perhaps it's not, but I'm curious for anybody that's listening at home and thinks, hey, I'm indecisive like John. How do I fix this? How do I improve upon this? John, what do you do to make decisions? Yeah, so I think it's important. Two things I would try to do is one, just like take responsibility. I, I think part of indecision comes from a fear of failure where, hey, if I actually take responsibility and make this decision and it's the wrong decision, will I? Will there be an aspect of regret? Um, and kind of fear of failure in that way. And I think the second one is avoiding external factors to inf enforce your decision. Um, and because I think about aspects of my own previous history where I used things like scholarships to help to help sway the decision for deciding on a college or you know diff different decisions that I relied on external factors to guide me. And then that's great in the time and then overall kind of, but as you look, on your history, you see the pattern of not really being in control of your life, which is a scary realization to have. And it's one I don't want indecisive listener um, <laughs> to, to have. So I think the two aspects would be actually make decisions and then don't let the tides of life dictate your path. Okay. Yeah, so you're up next, Alex. That's great. John, one of those is the love question, so you really only have one question left. Uh, okay, that's good to know. All right, let's get after it. Question number four. Why is our culture so obsessed with spoots? <laughs> John, can you read this word for me? With sports. Oh, oh, yes. Let's, yes. Great question. Why is our culture you, so obsessed guys, with sports? You should have just seen is this Alex's eyes light up with that question. Yeah, that's such a good question. One that I ask myself every day. No, I, okay. I will first give the, the pros, just like there are pros with Christian dating. Sports are an outlet for people, right? People are uh, irritable. They oftentimes cannot control everything in their life. They can't control their marriage is going, how their job is going, how their kids treat them. Sports are an outlet for that. Sports are an outlet to make you feel like you're a part of something. It gives you an automatic community. So like from a meta view and a psychological view, I get it. I get that sports are necessary, but why can't we as a society, as a society, get our outlet from collectively volunteering or collectively doing something where we are personally involved in something productive? Because being productive can also be fun. It just uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. Um, and you're saying so? You're saying the first aspect would be that you're consuming instead of building. Yeah, you're consuming. And then the second aspect is you're not even consuming something that like should should be enjoyable to consume. Like when you're eating an apple or an apple's not a good example, a donut. When you're eating a donut, you're getting a certain number of points of utility from that. But when you're watching a Cubs game, for example, I'm going to get so much hate for this. Oh my gosh, we're going to get canceled. When you're watching a Cubs game and the Cubs just traded in all of their players, you're not really watching like the Cubs of even a week ago, right? You're watching a completely new team and for some reason rooting for it. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of like logical sense to me um, and seems like an utter and complete waste of time. Back to you, John. <laughs> so I, I feel like I need to be the, all the listeners shouting at you yeah, right I now. Know, How I dare know, you? I know. I'm sorry. Um, and I think the Cubs example is a good example of just you cheer for a team and you want to cheer for an entity as opposed to a person. People will let you down. People will always let you down, Alex. Teams will only let you down when they trade well their players and tank to then get really good draft picks. But it's such a huge commitment of your time to be watching so many baseball games, for example. I mean, like people can hardly make time for coffee chats in the morning or for working out or for reading the Bible, right? How many people who are Christians regularly read the Bible every day? I don't even do that. And I'm a saint, right? <laughs> um, I, but you see what I mean? It's oh, a huge don't, time. Don't get me wrong. Boring baseball is a waste of time. Okay. Okay. Football. It's the same thing. I mean, it's a three-hour game and there's 10 minutes of action. I'd like to flip the question back to you, John. 
why is sports watching sports and being in a fantasy league a worthwhile use of your time so and i can hopefully talk to this from both perspectives i used to hate sports as well and then got addicted to fantasy football and now know way too much about the nfl which makes it way too fun to consume um so i guess i'll start with the idea why i like football and i like watching football is i know all of the players on the offense side that are skilled players um that are you know running routes or catching the ball or throwing the ball and there's an aspect of evolution to not only the strategy of the game but also in the drama of how um players perform in any given week right so just from a pure entertainment standpoint i can probably continue to sell you on football like the strategy in football i think you would love you're a huge strategy guy football is amazing in in its strategy depth um and i think there's also the aspect of just seeing a team and seeing the narratives play out over course of a season is really interesting and then mm. also having some personal like buy-in to the sport is also just really fun and i think that's unfortunately why sports gambling is such a addictive thing is that but that's a separate conversation so from an entertainment perspective, that's my pitch. Now, where yeah. I agree with you is that it is a waste of time to consume entertainment rather than be productive. You have to draw that line somewhere. Everyone draws it slightly differently. Um, some people need more um, you know, time where they can just consume as opposed to work. Yeah, I, I think part of it, if we zoom out, is is the entertainment experiential or are you just watching from the sidelines? And I think people fall into maybe two categories in that regard. I oftentimes don't like things where I'm not a participant. Like if I'm going to an art museum, for example, the most enjoyable thing about that art museum is walking around and talking to people because I, I'm just looking at the art. I could be doing that online if I really wanted to. Um, there's so the people you participate with. Yeah. So in yeah, the same so, way, so rather than rather than watching a sport, I'd rather play a sport. Rather than looking at a painting, I'd rather paint a painting. I like to be doing things unless I'm learning, in which case I can be watching a YouTube video. But if you're going to be doing that, make it productive. So the other aspect is the community around a sport, right? Um, so I think humans are built for community. You find it in um, you know religious institutions, but you also find it in sports teams. And being able to connect with someone, I know it's there's a reason why sports is a great small talk topic, is that you can e immediately make connections, you can speak the same language, and you can build that rapport and that relationship very quickly. I, I think that's fair, and I will leave my tirade at that because I know my popularity among our listeners is dropping to, to all-time lows right yeah, now. Yeah, that's <laughs> actually the reason I put that in there. Yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to be the more popular podcast Yeah, yeah you're host. trying to do a martyrdom and, uh, and get me kicked off the, uh, or mutiny, that's what I should be saying. I'm trying to mute me and get me. I was about to say martyrdom. Today. What a. <laughs> all right. All right. Anyways. Back to you, John. <laughs> all right. Uh, this is my final question here. So uh, here we go. Um, End it well. China created a limit on video game usage to three hours a week. Good or bad? So this is really interesting because I don't know if you knew this, Alex. I had a video game limit when in my childhood. I do know this, John. Okay. I, you never told me but I know you. <laughs> so I know that that existed. So there are two things that biographically you should know about me in order to answer this question. As a kid, I was limited to two hours a week of video games. And, and I have a slightly addictive personality tendencies when it comes to video games nowadays as an adult. So that being said, I think when you create limits on things, it could be anything. Diamonds, video games that thing becomes more scarce uh and i think when that scarcity happens that thing then becomes more valuable and people value it intrinsically more that that's often what the internal narrative i've spun for myself around why i maybe have more of an addictive tendency in those aspects yeah that's that's true as well for food for example if you grow up in a hyper healthy household you may end up being very unhealthy and, and gaining a ton of weight later in life and and so I think there's there's two sides to that coin. Where I'm really interested to get your take, though, is China's role in that Go government uh, overreach. That's where I'm going. I know you're really into to the tech scene. Uh, okay. Um, should should China have a say in that? Should China be playing the role of the parent? I think China, as an authoritarian government, has already exercised a lot of overreach into personal lives. 
Um, think about like the one child policy and I'm sure there's other policies as well. So I think whether or not China's doing this isn't a moot point. They've already exercised control. This is just one other area. Granted, they're doing it for the quote unquote public good, which I think is another question I think you can get into a conversation about why the government would do that in the first place. And I think there's there's good reasons behind it. Granted, the actual use of that is probably not the, or the actual implementation, the government actually cracking down and imposing those like limits and invading your privacy is probably not the best thing. Well, let's let's step away from China specifically then. What is that limit for a government? I mean, you and I both think that, you know, usage of pornography is not a good thing, right? Should a government ban pornography online? Right. So that's a great question. I think, see, this is my indecisive nature coming out. <laughs> I don't want to give a straight answer. I'll, I'll try to do stream of consciousness. As sure. I think about this, I think about there are things that the government pr protects us from against, you know, there's a reason why drugs are illegal or why, you know, you know, driving without a helmet in some states is illegal. Uh, or driving like a motorcycle without a helmet in some states is illegal. It's because it's been proven that those things are dangerous and harmful. Mm -hmm. I think the question comes to at what point, if I were to tell you, hey, Alex, I actually found out the other day that if I if people play 12 hours of video games over the over the course of five days, they will die. Is that enough to impose restrictions in the United States for something like that? Yeah. So in that case, you can just continue to expand. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> that was a very facetious answer. You're not. You're not helping me here. So I, don't, so, I don't know if you're wanting me to push back on that, but yeah, you should impose <laughs> restrictions in that case. So if you think about expanding that radius, at what point do you um, do you limit that? I would say the the China ban should not take place in the U.S. Obviously, I think the and if you look at the research, I think China's more worried about the product productivity of its population rather than the actual physical mental health right, of the, its right. users, which I think is a bad reason to implement something like this. I, I agree with you that there's no easy answer. One thought that comes to mind is that if, if we're trying to look at through the lens of our faith, the epic of Genesis starts out with two people in a perfectly protected uh, sphere of the garden of Eden with one uh, like option to disobey even even in that supposedly perfect garden there was an option for the humans to make the wrong decision so by that logic perhaps the government shouldn't necessarily regulate video game usage or pornography or, or whatever i mean i think there's a line in everything but perhaps it's wise to let humans have self-control or or the decision to make their their own choices about what is right and wrong for them yeah, and I think that is something that it requires a lot of political debate. Yeah, I, I don't want to draw a line. You're gonna, I my indecisiveness will not allow me to do that. But there's a line to draw somewhere. It's clearly not the three hours of video games a week. Um, so I think that's it would just require lots of discussion. And thankfully, I think as the United States has done a good job of providing those outlets. Um, you know, historically. Um, so sure. that, that, that is one thing to call out as well. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Um, and I think Alex, you want to end us with the final question here? Yeah, I do. Saving the best for last. Actually, I have no idea if it's any good. Why do you like the game diplomacy? <laughs> okay. So diplomacy is somewhat like risk for those of you who know risk, but essentially you are in world war one in Europe and you are a country and you're trying to achieve global domination. This is done through making alliances in 15 minute increments with other people to like betray other people. Um, and so this really gets to, I think what John is asking with this question is what, what do you enjoy about alliances and betrayal and backstabbing? Because John, I know you hate it. I've made you. It. I've I made you cry so. multiple times in yeah. this game. See, yeah. John has just been sobbing in tears every time we play this game. Call my mom. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, why? Why do you want to know, John? Is it? Is it because you want to know the how I'm so strong and how I'm so uh, successful at beating you every time? I think it gets into the Alex Cordapeter psyche on like what is strategy and what is like ultimate determination. One one thing I think about when I think about the game diplomacy is that there's no luck. 
It's all manipulation, all, um, yeah, social pressures. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay, okay. You learn so much from playing diplomacy because life is about manipulation. Literally every day... (laughs) This is very Machiavellian. The, the, the light just went on in uh, <laughs> your eyes. So like any interaction you have is a social interaction where you are trying to achieve an end result. And it's usually like super subconscious. I don't walk around thinking, how can I manipulate someone today? But in diplomacy, if you are too aggressive, people won't trust you. If you're too meek, you won't gain alliances. It's a, a, a miniature, how, how do we Miniaturized. <laughs> Miniaturized uh, version of life. And it just provides really good experience with what works and doesn't work. I used to be, when I played games, and when I tried to convince people of things, very heavy-handed. And what I learned over time is that people will push back, right? You have to be much more smooth and relaxed. And, oh, it doesn't, doesn't matter if you come to my Airbnb trip, John. I don't care, right? <laughs> Even if I do care. Um, you, you have to have balance in how you manipulate people and every, this could be a whole nother podcast episode. Every interaction is manipulation. And I used to tell my mom that and she, she hated it, but it's true. It's true. Am I wrong? How have you manipulated me in the past? I I manipulate you in every word that I say to you, John, and you do the same to me. And, and to say that that's not true is being deliberately obtuse. Wow. Okay. This is the perfect podcast content that I was looking for. This is, that's a great answer. So if you have two takeaways, listener, it's that Alex hates the, uh, hates the Cubs and is not to be trusted. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's leave it at that before I dig myself into a deeper hole. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you, John. We should do this again more often. We should. Hear me out. We actually invite, maybe we invite our friends on too, and we can have three mics and we have this mixer here. Oh my gosh. What a great idea. One more person to manipulate. all right before you get too crazy i'll uh, go ahead and sign us off um thanks so much for listening and we'll see you in two weeks